Hello and welcome to the Anglo-Saxons in their own words. My name is Danny. I'm going to be taking us back to church. Or rather, if you're one of those Anglo-Saxons who's just recently settled into Britain, to church for the very first time. Because today, we're going to be talking about the origins of the Anglo-Saxon church, and listening to Bede tell us how these pagan Germanic invaders eventually converted to Christianity. Now, the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons wasn't instant nor was it always a smooth process, and it took a couple of generations for Christianity to really take hold. Efforts in some parts of the island were more successful than others, and there's still some debate around whether some Anglo-Saxons continued in pagan belief long after most are generally believed to have converted. If we take the Vikings, for example, they would have arrived to mostly Christianized kingdoms. There's little doubt that there would have been an increase in paganism in areas the Scandinavians would come to rule once the Danelaw became established. People often took their religious cues from their leaders, and though old habits died hard, it was common in Anglo-Saxon England for commoners to follow the example of landowners, who in turn were taking their example from the king. It was very much a top-down structure, and this certainly would have helped Christianity gain an initial foothold on the island. Another thing the Christian church was always good at was incorporating elements of various cultural traditions into Christianity to make the religion more relatable to those they sought to minister to. For example, we still sometimes refer to Christmas time as Yuletide, which is actually the Anglo-Saxon name for the pagan holiday that comes around every winter. Similarly, the English word for Easter is derived from an old English word, though initially it certainly did not mean what it means today, namely, the holiday on which the death and resurrection of Christ is celebrated. So as Christianity made its way into Britain once again, We see, by and large, the Anglo-Saxons discarding their old gods and accepting this new faith, which would come to feature very prominently in their society. To tell the story of how the Anglo-Saxons came to faith, I'm going to read a few stories from Bede's history, starting with that of Augustine's mission. Now, though Augustine is arguably the most famous, there were a few missionaries responsible for the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons. We have to remember, we're dealing with a load of different tribal kingdoms and not everyone was converting at the same time. That being said, I think Bede does a pretty good job of telling us who did what, so let's listen in and hear what he has to tell us about their work. Chapter 23 How the Holy Pope Gregory sent Augustine, with other monks, to preach to the English nation, and encouraged them, by a letter of exhortation, not to desist from their labor. In the year of our Lord 582, Maurice, the 54th from Augustus, ascended the throne, and reigned twenty-one years. In the tenth year of his reign, Gregory, a man eminent in learning and the conduct of affairs, was promoted to the Apostolic See of Rome, and presided over it thirteen years, six months, and ten days. He, being moved by divine inspiration, in the fourteenth year of the same emperor, and about the one hundred and fiftieth after the coming of the English into Britain, sent the servant of God, Augustine, and with him, diverse other monks who feared the Lord, to preach the word of God to the English nation. Now, I'm just going to stop right there for a second. We could easily glance over this, but just think about this for a minute. Bede says about the 150th year after the coming of the English into Britain. That means the Anglo-Saxons have already been here for 150 years. For reference, that's as old as Canada. It's long enough for the language of the Anglo-Saxons to evolve to something unique to that of the continent and definitely long enough for them to steep themselves in their own traditions, barring those which they would have undoubtedly brought with them from the continent, like their gods, for example. 
So when I say old habits die hard, these really are old habits, and you can understand why not everyone was willing to convert the first time they met a priest. Okay, back to the story. They having, in obedience to the Pope's commands, undertaken that work, when they had gone but a little way on their journey, were seized with craven terror and began to think of returning home, rather than proceed to a barbarous, fierce, and unbelieving nation, to whose very language they were strangers. And by common consent, they decided that this was the safer course. At once, Augustine, who had been appointed to be consecrated bishop if they should be received by the English, was sent back, that he might, by humble entreaty, obtain of the blessed Gregory, that they should not be compelled to undertake so dangerous, toilsome, and uncertain a journey. The Pope, in reply, sent them a letter of exhortation, persuading them to set forth to the work of the divine word, and rely on the help of God. The purport of which letter was as follows. Now, I won't read the whole letter that Bede's included here, even though it's not very long, but the main gist comes from this section right here. Quote, It behoves you, my beloved sons, to fulfill with all diligence the good work which, by the help of the Lord, you have undertaken. Let not, therefore, the tongues of evil-speaking men discourage you, but with all earnestness and zeal perform by God's guidance that which you have set about, being assured that the great labor is followed by the greater glory of an eternal reward. End quote. Now, for whatever reason, after Bede tells us about Gregory's letter to Augustine, he includes another letter written by the Pope to a bishop named Aetherius, which seems to me an interesting sidebar. But anyway, we pick up the story of Augustine again in chapter 25. Augustine, thus strengthened by the encouragement of the Blessed Father Gregory, returned to the work of the Word of God with the servants of Christ who were with him and arrived in Britain. The powerful Ethelbert was at that time the King of Kent. He had extended his dominions as far as the boundary formed by the great river Humber, in which the southern Saxons are divided, according to the English way of reckoning, 600 families, divided from the mainland by the river Wansom, which is about three furlongs in breadth, and which can be crossed in only two places, for at both ends it runs into the sea. On this island landed the servant of the Lord Augustine and his companions, being, as is reported, nearly forty men. They had obtained, by order of the blessed Pope Gregory, interpreters from the nation of the Franks, and, sending to Ethelbert, signified that they were come from Rome and brought a joyful message, which most undoubtedly assured to those that hearkened to it everlasting joys in heaven, and a kingdom that would never end with the living and true God. The king, hearing this, gave orders that they should stay in the island where they had landed, and be furnished with necessaries, till he should consider what to do with them. For he had before heard of the Christian religion, having a Christian wife of the royal family of the Franks, called Bertha, whom he had received from her parents, upon condition, that she should be permitted to preserve inviolate the rites of her religion with the bishop Lutard, who was sent with her to support her in the faith. Some days after, the king came into the island, and sitting in the open air, ordered Augustine and his companions to come and hold a conference with him. For he had taken precaution that they should not come to him in any house, lest, by so coming, according to an ancient superstition, if they practiced any magical arts, they might impose upon him, and so get the better of him. But they came endued with divine, not with magic power, bearing a silver cross for their banner, and the image of our Lord and Savior painted on a board. And chanting litanies, they offered up their prayers to the Lord, for the eternal salvation, both of themselves, and of those to whom and for whom they had come. 
When they had sat down in obedience to the king's commands and preached to him and his attendants there present the word of life, the king answered thus, Your words and promises are fair, but because they are new to us and of uncertain import, I cannot consent to them so far as to forsake that which I have so long observed with the whole of the English nation. But, because you are come from far as strangers into my kingdom, and, as I conceive, are desirous to impart to us those things which you believe to be true and most beneficial, we desire not to harm you, but will give you favorable entertainment and take care to supply you with all things necessary to your sustenance. Nor do we forbid you to preach and gain as many followers as you can to your religion. Accordingly, he gave them an abode in the city of Canterbury, which was the metropolis of all his dominions, and, as he had promised, besides supplying them with sustenance, did not refuse them liberty to preach. It is told that as they drew near to the city, after their manner with the Holy Cross and the image of our Sovereign Lord and King, they sang in concert this litany. We beseech thee, O Lord, for thy great mercy, that thy wrath and anger be turned away from this city and from thy holy house, for we have sinned. Hallelujah. Chapter 26 As soon as they entered the dwelling place assigned to them, they began to imitate the apostolic manner of life in the primitive church, applying themselves to constant prayer, watchings, and fastings, preaching the word of life to as many as they could, despising all worldly things as in no wise concerning them, receiving only their necessary food from those they taught, living themselves in all respects conformably to what they taught, and being always ready to suffer any adversity, and even to die for that truth which they preached. In brief, some believed and were baptized, admiring the simplicity of their blameless life and the sweetness of their heavenly doctrine. There was on the east side of the city a church dedicated of old to the honor of St. Martin, built whilst the Romans were still in the island, and wherein the queen, who, as has been said before, was a Christian and was wont to pray. In this, they also began to come together to chant the psalms, to pray, to celebrate mass, to preach, to baptize, till when the king had been converted to the faith, they obtained greater liberty to preach everywhere and build or repair churches. When he, among the rest, believed and was baptized, attracted by the pure life of the holy men and their gracious promises, the truth of which they established by many miracles, greater numbers began daily to flock together to hear the word, and forsaking their heathen rites to have fellowship through faith in the unity of Christ's holy church. It is told that the king, while he rejoiced at their conversion and their faith, yet compelled none to embrace Christianity, but only showed more affection to the believers as to his fellow citizens in the kingdom of heaven. For he had learned from those who had instructed him and guided him to salvation, that the service of Christ ought to be voluntary, not by compulsion, nor was it long before he gave his teachers a settled residence suited to their degree in his metropolis of Canterbury, with such possessions of diverse sorts as were necessary for them. All right. Pretty cool, right? King Ethelbert of Kent converts to Christianity. He would be the first of the Anglo-Saxon kings to accept the new faith. And you can kind of see why. I mean, he was likely already exposed to it a fair amount by his wife. Overall, Kent is the kingdom that had the closest relationship with any Christian kingdom, being a close trading partner with Francia. And with his invitation to Augustine and his party to stay, Ethelbert really is the guy who started what will become a long tradition among English kings of giving lands and supplies to the church. And Canterbury, well, 
that went on to become a pretty important place, as I'm sure you're aware. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the highest office in the Church of England to this day. That's a pretty amazing legacy. Okay, we've covered quite a bit today, and that is probably the most important event in terms of the introduction of Christianity to the Anglo-Saxons. But we will be covering some of Bede's other stories in the next episode, and talking about how some of the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms came to faith. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, send them to me at theanglosaxonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.